Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. Welcome to In the Oil Patch radio. I'm Robert Ray Pierre, senior contributor from Forbes, sitting in for Kim Bellotto. This week's guest is Catherine Mills, an operations engineer in the oil industry. She's also the host of the Crude Audacity podcast, which covers all aspects of the oil and gas industry. Uh, Catherine tells me it's been on hiatus, but she may have something to tell us about uh, plans for the podcast in 2024. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's good to uh, to talk about energy. I, I enjoyed <laughs> doing this. The last couple of guests were friends of mine, and you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit. So uh, uh, we should have a good, productive uh, show here. Absolutely, especially going into 2024 with all of the presidential runs, everything we're seeing, the wrap-up of 2023. It should be a great conversation today. Right, I agree. And uh, before we jump into that, um, let's tell readers a little bit or listeners a little bit about who you are. So, yeah, um, I have sort of an unconventional approach to the energy industry. Um, I first went to school for business and economics out of Virginia, and I grew up in the oil and gas industry, but, you know, fought it tooth and nail, a very reluctant engineer, if you will. And Finally, um, a few years after college 1.0, it became evident that I needed to sort of uh, take those steps into becoming a petroleum engineer, start exploring. And one of the universities that I was accepted into for secondary education or I guess secondary post education, whatever you want to call it, um, was School of Mines. And while there... Um, I initially went just to get a master's, uh, but the faculty thoroughly tricked me into getting the undergrad as well. So it's kind of been that way ever since. Based out of Colorado, I've worked with consulting teams, um, done a little bit of international evaluations, but really just staying in the Texas Rockies and now the Gulf South. So it's it's been an experience. I've kind of a catch-all engineer these days. So did you go straight to work for the oil industry out of school? Not the first time around, um, but definitely when when I graduated uh, with my master's from mines in 2017, I actually, no one was really hiring story of the oil and gas industry, right? So I started reaching out to managers um, and reservoir departments started asking them to coffee and basically found an opportunity to go and work for Anschutz when I first got out. Um, but it definitely took uh, me being proactive in my career as opposed to just applying on standard job boards. Okay. So, so tell me about your job. Where do you fit in the oil and gas supply chain? So I'm somewhere between upstream and midstream. Um, definitely operations engineer, definitely reservoir, advanced characterization, uh, you know, seismic to full-blown modeling. Um, but these days I'm uh, very much fall into facilities. So 
after wellhead, everything's coming down flow lines and going into processing plants. And that's kind of where I fall into the facilities production engineer. We want to keep it going. We want to keep everything steady. Um, but we are in the midst of a couple CO2 floods that have been going for a while. One of them we're looking to expansion and I'm about to work with the team to kick off a water flood here soon. That's been long planned and in the works, but um, now we're building up the plant to get ready for injection wells and that should be kicking off uh let's say end of q1 of 2024 okay so hey when i think about the uh, oil industry mississippi doesn't jump to to mind and i know you work in mississippi and i think well okay but probably got a lot of offshore um but but you're doing onshore stuff right i mean you're t so t tell listeners who may not be familiar with the oil and gas industry in mississippi what is going on down there um, so it is one of the best kept secrets of the oil field and honestly throughout the United States, that whole region of the southern states, um, more conventional type assets, probably not truly conventional, definitely some horizontal opportunities out there. But, you know, the craze of West Texas took over years ago and has kind of stayed steady. Everyone's chasing the initial IP to be best in basin. And we're out there just, you know, taking old, old, old fields. I'm talking like <laughs> pre-oxy type fields and um, just doing recompletes, looking for uh, untapped zones or just simply, you know, keeping assets up and running because they've been steady producers for, you know, basically decades now. But, but you're right. Not very many people think about these southern states as big opportunities. Not very many people are thinking about Alabama for coal bed methane. And we kind of like it that way. You know, it's a slower way of life down here, but it is definitely um, that it, it allows for a lot of opportunity and a lot of engineering that is otherwise lost in, say, uh, the eastern half of the United States all the way to West Texas. So so what does a recomplete entail? What are you doing when you go in and you recomplete a well? Um, usually we're going through looking for deeper zones or looking any, for anything that's behind pipe, you know, that might not have been previously explored. The same as what you see in other basins or other assets. Um, but it, it's just opportunities that weren't initially tapped. Re uh, go back, look at your well control, maybe wrap in a little petrophysics that you otherwise wouldn't have had from, say, the 80s or before. In some cases, we're looking at 3D seismic opportunities to see if the rumors are true, if this is really the, the biggest opportunity that was out there. And it's, it's pretty exciting. But again, not a lot of people have a lot of eyes on us, which allows us to be more creative in terms of field management and actual true blue oil field engineering opportunities. So now a lot of those oils probably a lot of those oils probably predate fracking. Are you going in and fracking any of those? Or is there as much of a fracking uh, business there? I mean, yeah, you'll get some of it, but like, I mean, every well is stimulated in some fashion, right? You're not just like shooting perfs and all of a sudden you've you've got you know steady oil flow. You've got to go through. You've got to clean up. You've got to open up the rock in some way. So. 
fracking, I guess the way the outsiders, <laughs> the outsiders want to say it with a K, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, not what you see in West Texas, but in terms of running stages and even on, you know, slightly directional wells like S's or J's or things like that. Yeah, we've we've got crews out here, not many, but that's OK. We like it that way. So are you primarily oil and, and some gas or, or you, do you lots do of gas? Lots of gas. Lots of NGLs, lots of gas. I feel like I'm giving y'all secrets to come and look at like opportunities down here. Y'all stay in West Texas. You guys have you guys have fun in Wyoming. We're good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tell me about. Uh, so you told me that you're working on a gas plant there. So I guess there's enough gas there to have NGLs. What you know, mm-hmm. can you, what can you what can you tell us about that? Um. Well, facilities is an art in and of itself. It should be taught more in school. And in fact, the whole process of becoming a petroleum engineer should probably be reevaluated into an apprenticeship with very little classroom time so that you can actually get out in the field and learn things. Um, But, you know, it, it was kind of a shock for me to come in. Luckily, I have an excellent team that I'm working with who has been doing this for years. So um, I'm, I'm learning from the ground up, like anything from, you know, membrane management all the way to actually modeling the floods themselves and seeing, you know, like the, the myths of the huff and puffs, if you will. And it's been a learning experience because we aren't exposed to that. And typically you see chemical engineers fall into this realm. And while some do, they aren't receiving that same training through their educational process as well. They're getting to the field and having to learn it from the ground up. And some of their training is probably better uh, preparing them for some of uh, these processes you see throughout the field. But it's all material balance at the end of the day and looking for an opportunity with Someone from, you know, the the glorif- the glorified oil field of the 80s, if you will, who's actually gone through these processes and seen how they work and actually seen the mechanics behind it. I mean, that's your key, right? Uh, engineers today, 30 years and younger or 10 years and less in the field typically don't see these opportunities. So if you're able to get into one of these mid-sized shops and really sink your teeth into it, don't be afraid to become the catch-all engineer because you're going to have opportunities in your career that other people only dream of, if not, probably don't even know about. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because I, I'm a chemical engineer and I, I was in the petroleum engineering building at Texas A&M. That was where my office was. And it was interesting to see some of the differences in what the petroleum engineers learned and what we learned. A lot of it is is the same. I mean, you've got, you know, thermodynamics and fluids and things. But then the, the petroleum engineers got into a lot of areas that, uh, you know, I, I I still don't know to this day. Um, I've, I've managed engineers out in the oil fields, but, uh, you know, a lot of the things they do is a little bit different than the stuff I did. You know, I, I mean, the controversial, I guess, statement is to be a good engineer, you've got to get out of the library. I, I absolutely believe that. Go visit your field, go see what's happening. You know, the solution to everything isn't just swabbing a well. <laughs> so. Right. So, uh, okay, we've got about a minute until our break, until we need to take a commercial break. But um, I, I, after the break, I want to get into uh, sort of overall energy policy. And I know you've got some thoughts on that. I just reported in Forbes that uh, the U.S. U.S. oil and gas producers set a new production record. And as of last Friday, by my calculations, we, we're into record territory now. 
And, um, you know, a lot of people take that as a political statement, and uh, I, I don't intend it as a political statement. It's, it's just a fact. Uh, but, you know, after the break, I would like to talk to you about, you know, U.S. energy policy. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Um, you know, what needs to change? So, Absolutely. Uh, yep. So with that, we'll take a quick commercial break. And then uh, after the break, we'll get into energy policy. Again, I'm Robert Ray Pierre, standing in for Kim Bilotto and In the Oil Patch Radio with my guest, Catherine Mills. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com TXOGA. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm Robert Ray Pierre with this week's guest, Catherine Mills. So, Catherine, let's talk about energy policy. Uh, before the break, I mentioned that the U.S. Uh, has set a new oil production record, a new annual high. Natural gas production, we won't know that for sure until sometime in 2024 uh, because they don't report the, those, rec- those numbers weekly like they do the oil production. But as of September, we were running 4% ahead of last year's uh, record. So uh, clearly the oil industry, the oil and gas industry is doing well, despite dealing with headwinds from an administration that is fairly hostile toward oil and gas. On the other hand, I'm hearing from people that rigs are stacking up and some oil companies are laying off. So what do you see right now? Does business look good from your perspective? Uh, you know, what are you seeing in the field? So, I mean, the reality is, is that we're, as an industry, we are stuck in sort of the same cycle that we've always been stuck in, right? Opportunity starts happening, everyone blocks towards oil and gas, and then all of a sudden something happens, either we have an unfavorable administration, and that could be on the Republican or the Democrat side, but... um, you know, then we start seeing slowdowns. We start seeing more hostilities depending on who's running actual states and looking at oil and gas boards for rules and regs. Like Colorado is in a perpetual state of defense and just trying to keep the industry going. Whereas some of the smaller states or maybe the lesser known states are able to operate as business as usual and aren't as, you know, driven by agenda. Um, and yeah, everyone says that the Biden administration is anti-oil and gas, but we've also had pretty consistently higher higher prices, higher than 50, if you will, um, per barrel for since the beginning of this administration. And the reality is, is that presidential uh, cabinets are judged based off of the the flow of economics, right? So while consumer confidence might be down, we're still seeing industries sort of buzzing. So it becomes one of those talking out of both sides of your mouth. 
we're never going to see the slowdown of production without without the slowdown of demand. So the consumer can sit there and say, we don't like oil and gas, antisocial license to operate, um, all of these ESG efforts that, I mean, questionable what they're actually resulting in. But we also see innovation in interesting ways because administratively wise, we, we've got a whole methane industry now, right? And we've been seeing this budding for a few decades, but it took... Uh, certain individuals in Colorado to set policy and then create a company that drove these methane evaluations. And we're seeing majors flock to it. You know, we want our ESG, we want that tick box, but what has it actually done industry-wise? We can argue several different ways over that, but the reality is, is it, it, it took someone realizing that it was governmental control to basically build up a leg of an industry. So uh, oil and gas isn't going anywhere. I don't think anybody's worried about that. And I don't think anybody necessarily cares that the current president might be outwardly unfavorable in oil and gas. Meanwhile, his son sitting on a national oil company's board without any sort of, you know, uh, qualifications to do so saying he's putting up sanctions on places like Russia and we're not taking quote unquote unethical oil, but really we, we are still purchasing uh, Russian oil to make up for the lags we see from anything from United States based production. So it's all, you know, what side of the mouth are they talking about and who is their biggest provider and what are they actually trying to accomplish while in federal office? I mean, from your experience, what have you seen happen over the decades? It, the Bush administration is arguably just as, you know, questionable as currently the Biden administration on energy policy. Right. So I, I always tell people that uh, the biggest factor in the oil and gas industry is the oil price and gas price. And what a president does is very inconsequential relative to that underlying price. And I I always give examples like, you know, you think of George W. Bush as an oil man, and yet oil production fell all eight years he was in office. And hence we got desert storm out of it. I mean, come on, we can follow the money. Yeah, but but the thing that was happening on his watch is if fracking was being developed and starting to uh, pay dividends, and then you saw that under Obama, you saw under Obama fracking mature, and so... Obama, and he encouraged it, but then he com- he condemned pipelines. It just he tried to, yeah. He tried to have it both ways. Yeah, um, you know he. I, and and we had the largest expansion of oil and gas production in U.S. history under President Obama. And I don't think anybody would call him a pro oil president. You know, Mm-mm. Bush was a pretty pro oil president. Although we did get a massive expansion of biofuel mandates under Bush. Um, but, you know, then Obama comes in and, and fracking starts to pay dividends and, and, you know, whether he's hostile or not, and he did have multiple hostile policies, you know, the, the macro factors are far, far more important than what a president can do. Now, in the long run, exactly. I tell people, in the long run, presidents can have very consequential decisions. And I give Nixon as an example of that. Nixon cleared away a bunch of the barriers for the Alaska pipeline. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of environmental protests and lawsuits, and he cleared all that out. 
And then the Alaska pipeline got built and it started producing oil when Carter was in office. And so you saw oil turn up under Carter. So that's a that's an example of a consequential uh, decision by a president that had a long term a long term impact. But in the short term, I always tell people, just look to the price, look to what OPEC is doing. Although OPEC is starting to lose. OPEC, does OPEC really have the influence that we think OPEC has? I mean, the reality is, is like we're watching Trudeau basically cripple Canada. So we've got all of these assets. We've got easily found oil. We have technology that makes it, you know, clean, safe, affordable. But Trudeau won't allow us to build certain pipelines. It's who's paying the buck? Well, let's let's take a break and let's get into that because I would I would argue that OPEC has lost a lot of power. So let's talk about that after the break. I'm Robert Rapier with In the Oil Patch Radio. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier, guest host, sitting in for Kim Bilotto with this week's guest, Catherine Mills. Catherine, before the break, we touched upon OPEC a little bit. Um, you know, 20 years ago, OPEC had a firm handle on the global oil and gas industry. You know, they could cut production and they could shoot prices higher or flood the market and shoot prices lower. And then fracking came along and cut into OPEC's market share. Um, but, but still, when OPEC teams up with Russia and OPEC Plus, they still control nearly half of the world's oil production, but they, they don't have as much control as they used to. So what do you think? Do, do we need to be out there actively combating OPEC? You know, what steps should we be taking to ensure that we can't be strongly influenced by OPEC, or is that just happening naturally? Well, I mean, let's start with the OPEC plus term, right? That's adorable, right? They're pulling in as many countries as they can, but ultimately the economics behind it don't make sense in terms of cartel theory. There's always going to be someone that breaks the agreement. And while OPEC or Saudi rather might be king, if they can't get all the other players to stay in line, which historically they've been unable to do so, there's always someone who's like, oh, there's some market share, I'm gonna try and grab it. And then they ultimately end up you know, shooting themselves in the foot, if you will. And then we've got these, you know, we're going to cut production back X amount for a short amount of time. But then you look at daily consumer demand of said petroleum products. And how long does that cut actually benefit us? It's usually Band-Aids, if, if at all, has an impact. Where it becomes concerning, I would say, is what are these fluctuations in OPEC doing to the consistency of our petrodollar? And that is something while the U.S. dollar 
arguably is going to stay consistent. And yeah, we'll see ups and downs, but we're not going to lose the power of the US dollar, whereas the power of the petrodollar can potentially be undermined by things like Russia, India, and China. And it's quite frankly our own fault because of lack of knowledge in geopolitical management, if you will. So inevitably, the the rest of the world, through all of their good citizenship, again, in quotes, um, they're pushing three powers together that have do not carry the same morals or the same end goals as, say, the rest of the world. And it is scary because they are producing things like the petro yen and the petro ruble. And if someone like Saudi within the OPEC game, and again, maybe their their five biggest players decide to come over and start accepting other uh, forms of the petrodollar itself, then it does have the potential to undermine the very basis of our economy. And that's why we have to be careful. But in terms of like daily production and spiking price and then dropping price, I mean, so many companies these days have hedging agreements and preset contracts that it's cute, but it's really not doing anything for day-to-day production. We would have to see a long-term impact for it to actually have the consequences that it did prior to the the frack revolution. Yeah, in fact, um, I think OPEC learned a hard lesson about a decade ago, not quite a decade ago. And I I actually wrote an article for Forbes and I coined it OPEC's trillion dollar miscalculation. (laughs) I said they're out there trying to put the frackers out of business. And while they did shake out some of the uh, weaker players, it also forced capital discipline. It forced them to tighten up their belts and really um, you know, prepare themselves against this kind of this kind of stuff from OPEC. And so, you know, a couple of years in, OPEC waves the white flag and they say, OK, we've had enough. We're going to we're going to go back to uh, from from flooding the market to trying to control price. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people don't, you know, for the average consumer, OPEC is a bad deal. But for the oil industry, OPEC, you know, to the extent that they raise prices, it, it helps the oil industry. And, um, you know, depends when the contract was written. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I I think the average consumer probably hates OPEC because they they see them driving up prices. But, you know, what's good for OPEC is is good for ExxonMobil generally. Yeah, well, they tend to have their hand pretty, pretty well established in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Some of these these super majors, they're always going to chase policy that benefits them and we just have to be aware that we have to pivot based off of their end goal not necessarily ours right okay so let's take a quick break right there and we'll get back into uh some some new issues when we come back with Catherine mills on in the oil patch radio any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website 
shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with this week's guest, Catherine Mills. Catherine, um, one of the things people hit me with all the time is that, um, you know, the oil and gas industry is a highly polluting industry and the industry gets blamed for carbon emissions. And I've dealt with people who are convinced that oil companies dump their waste right into rivers and oceans. But uh, let's let's talk about reality here. Um, Yeah, reality. Aren't you bored with that question? I'm bored with the narrative. I think we've more than proven multiple times that if you drive through an oil field, the likelihood of the average individual who's not within the industry even recognizing that it's an oil field, like, yeah, you might see some pump jacks, but are they really going to recognize what a wellhead is? I mean, it's clean. We have so many rules and regs in place. Pipelines in and of themselves have a reclamation process. You can't just abandon an oil field. There there are so many state processes that you have to do for the reclamation process. You know, we want to talk about it. The administration wants to talk about it. It's going to be a huge topic for 2024. But quite frankly, I'm just bored with it because consumers have not curbed their demand for consumption of oil and gas products even all the way down to like NGLs and basic plastics, right? Whereas we already know why, quote unquote, renewable energies, very poorly misnamed, um, have never really exceeded 30% of any grid out there. So why are we kind of still entertaining this? Is it because of the ESG movement? Is it because of BlackRock? Or is it just because there's nothing else to say? I think one of the issues is people like to pass the buck and people don't like to take responsibility. And uh, I think when when somebody says, you know, ExxonMobil, look at the Exxon Valdez and look at look at that. And I say, well, that wouldn't happen if you didn't demand oil all the time. And those accidents happen. And or they'll say, you know, look at the carbon emissions. And I'll say, who's responsible for that? You know, seven billion people or something that. That's who's responsible for it. And, and you know who's driving it? Who's driving it is, you know, several billion Asians who are just barely increasing their standard of living. But so many people <laughs> driving that higher. And I think that's a that's something people don't realize that the U.S. is not driving carbon emissions. Uh, that's being driven by developing countries. And it's a, that's why it's such a tough problem. Well, the the terms fossil fuel uh, indicating that this is a non-renewable resource uh, that was first started in the what 1790s, 1750s, actually. And then we saw the emergence of dirty energy. But there's actually no definition behind that. We're seeing the the push um, or the breakdown of nuclear options. But these these opportunities have actually been killed by environmentalists such as the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, things along those lines. So, you know, it's it's kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face. And the average daily non-energy based consumer, they've heard both sides of the narrative because, I mean, no credit to us. We really haven't changed our answers very well. We've tried to adopt ESG, but there's there's only so much you can do with a moving goalpost. Right. So 
it, it kind of goes a bit further and maybe we're not asking the right questions or maybe we fundamentally don't understand the actual problem um, that we're trying to solution for here. But the reality is, is that oil and gas is not going to go away. The consumption for it. I mean, you see, we've got all of these drill rigs going electric these days. Well, where do you think electricity is generated? Uh, what problem have we actually solved? We've just added more cost and more cleanup and quite frankly, a bigger footprint that we then have to solution for that we're just not talking about now, but will we be talking about it in 30 years? It's, it is a boring question, but looking to a Democrat or a Republican to solve it, it's kind of the same issue as gun control. Is there anybody who's actually willing to solve it? Because you lose money when you cure said patient, right? But the, what the strides have been made in terms of oil and gas upstream production and even midstream uh, transportation of said products, light years ahead of any renewable resource portion of the energy industry. So why are we still having this argument and what are we missing with the consumers not wanting to or wanting to use an ESG score before they actually invest in something that's making daily lives better? Right. And I, I think it gets back to I've, I've used this example a long time ago whenever we were talking about tightening up fuel stamp, fuel efficiency standards. And I said, you know, everybody's for that until because, because they think I will still be able to drive my big SUV, but you're just going to make it more fuel efficient and there's no cost or consequence to me. When the reality is that means, you know, that may mean vehicle offerings have to be smaller and lighter and actually things that do impact you. Mm -hmm. And, but, but, you know, we like to pass the buck, you know, we're, I, uh, people don't like to think, you know, when they're pumping gas, I'm responsible for, you know, what I'm about to consume. They want to make, you know, Exxon Mobil or, you know, Chevron is responsible for that. And that goes back to the California lawsuit where they're trying to sue them for misleading over, uh, you know, I, I, I get on a soapbox about that because it's so silly to me that California, a major oil producing state that has benefited tremendously from astronomical state uh, is now their carbon credits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, guess what? You can't you can't qualify for carbon credits in California if you have anything to do with the oil and gas industry. But meanwhile, we're applying a fake marketing based term of carbon neutral to plants like ethanol plant or yeah, the ethanol corn plants that are just emitting, you know, thousands upon thousands of MCF of CO2 directly into the atmosphere. I I would encourage everyone listening be concerned about what's happening in your own backyard. And with a grain of salt, you should be listening to someone that is dubbed himself the climate czar, but has yet to give up two private planes, one yacht and beachfront properties. There is a fundamental, you know, panic driven, chaos driven narrative behind climate change. And yet none of the predictions have actually happened. So when are we going to start asking as the consumer the right question? Right. Okay. So we're heading into our final segment. Got a lot of questions still to ask you. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, let's take one more break here. I am Robert Ray Pierre with my guest, Catherine Mills on In the Old Patch Radio. 
Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that will go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three- and six-person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side owner study. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with this week's guest, Catherine Mills. Uh, Catherine, in this last segment, there's a few questions I would like to get to. Um, I, you know, we're heading into an election year, and I think there's different opinions about what's going to happen and how, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia will play this, trying to maybe influence the election. But how do you see energy uh, playing out as we go into this election year? I mean, is this something that Biden is going to tout? Is it something he's going to hide behind? Uh, and how do you see the other players in the uh, in the world uh, reacting as we head into toward the election? Well, energy prices, as we know it as the everyday consumer, is something that impacts everybody's backyard. It's the same with education and healthcare. These are things and decisions that directly impact our purchase power, the the, I guess, the power of our paycheck, if you will. So, of course, it's going to be an absolutely, you know, cutthroat type of conversation. But what can Biden really stand on? He's he's not shut us down. He's not shut the primary baseload energies down. But he also really hasn't answered to the, you know, Bernie Sanders AOC uh side of the coin either, which ultimately, if you think about it, could be the very demise of the Democrat Party um, based off of what they have been trying to push over the last, um, you know, term of the um, administration itself and even in the uh, prior election. So it's going to be interesting to see what side of the mouth he talks out of, because talking and, you know, action are very different things. And it'll be also interesting to see how, you know, Trump approaches it, because really, what is there to complain about when oil prices, steady production, production's increasing, consumer demand is increasing, prices have been above 50. There is opportunity on so many levels. But I mean, yes, we're seeing consolidation, but that's really a plague of private equity, right? Or the result of the last downturn and the last crew change. So I don't know which way it's going to go, but I can guarantee you it's going to be a vicious conversation and I'm 100 percent here for it. <laughs> right. I, I, the way I see it playing out, I mean, I think that um, Saudi and Saudi Arabia and Russia would both like to see Trump back in office. And they know that 
high prices would probably help uh, Biden lose the election. But, you know, as we discussed earlier, they're losing a lot of their pricing power. So I think they would like to influence prices higher. I don't know that they would be able to pull that off. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, typically in an election year, politicians, especially Democratic politicians, have used the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try to uh, get prices down and impact prices leading up to the election. And uh, with the major uh, draw that Biden has done on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I don't really see that as an option for him. So I think it makes uh -uh. him more vulnerable to things that Russia or Saudi Arabia might be able to do. So from my perspective, it's really hard to, to figure out where oil prices are going over the next year, I think it's going to be a lot more uncertain. What What is your outlook on that? What do you, how do you see oil prices going in? in well, we recently saw some major consolidations, um, especially from like Exxon. We saw Hess get taken over. denberry has been taken over. These are arguably major players of the past and still had very large footprints. And the last time we saw that was Honestly, in preparation for what was expected to be a boom, it seems everyone is bearish on oil price and oil and gas price and GL price. Um, but, you know, it's bitten us in the foot before. So I would I would assume that we're going to see some sort of uptick coming our way. But it would also not surprise me if some random presidential decree came out that created a burden for us because let's face it i mean while that man came into office he was signing uh presidential um decrees and even looked at the media and said laughed and said i don't even know what i'm signing so it's really what is his cabinet trying to do what deals are being made and is Biden, is Biden even there, you know, are they banking everything on Biden or is there someone like Newsom they're trying to work into it? So it just it depends what fighter they put in place and who the cabinet behind him is going to be. Right. And I have actually talked to Biden voters who are unhappy about the oil production record that we're going to set this year because they said, you know, he didn't deliver what he said he was going to deliver. And I, what has he delivered except well, I, Amazon Prime? I, I tell I tell people that that's presidents don't really do that. I mean, that, that's a president, like I said, is I, I view them as pretty inconsequential. The oil industry is going to do what they do and they're going to be driven by by prices mostly. Um, so I, I, I've got a few questions left to ask that I probably won't have time to ask. But before we do run out of time, I wanted to ask you about your podcast. You said it's been on hiatus a couple of years, but we talked and you said you may want to uh, re revive it next year. So what can you tell us about the podcast? What has that experience been like? And if we have time, I'll ask you a couple more questions, but I, I wanted to make sure we got in some time for you to be able to talk about that. So podcasting is most definitely a full-time job. And anybody who comes to me and says, hey, I'm interested in starting a podcast, uh, as long as you have a clear vision, go for it. Because the reality is, is that unless you have an ample amount of time to nurture it and to promote it, Sometimes it gets put by the wayside. I'm a perfect example of that. You know, COVID happened, new opportunities in business and marketing started happening. And I took those opportunities so that I could continue to build up my personal portfolio. But ideally, I would be podcasting full time. I absolutely loved it. I loved oil, energy and politics, talking shop shit and strategy with oil field influencers and just across the globe. But the goal for next year is to bring it back on a regular basis, um, but it all depends on the ebb of other businesses, right? So 
I'm a contract engineer. When that pro, uh, when that I guess contract washes up, it will be on to the next thing. And that's something I would actually encourage everyone in the oil and gas industry. If we are known for anything, it is volatility. So if you were relying on one paycheck, I am going to strongly suggest you find a way to diversify and diversify quickly. <laughs> I've had two full-time jobs for 10 years. So uh, I've, I've, I've always had something steady in the background because mm -hmm. right, oil, oil and gas can be very volatile. I know. Um, we should think of it as a hobby, right? We went to school for our favorite hobby. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of funny because that's how I branched out. You know, I was working at Conical Phillips, and, uh, you know, I needed a hobby, and I started writing. And from the writing, it kind of took off into a, yeah. a career of its own. So we've got a one minute left. But I, I wanted to ask you, you know, quickly, if, if what kind of policy changes would you like to see for the, for the oil and gas industry? What could help us? Um, you know, get that next leg up on, on production? Um, if you really want to see more diversification and opportunity, you are going to have to start creating policy that favors the small operator instead of the super majors. And, you know, I, I appreciate the full spectrum, but we're going to have to create policy that uplifts these smaller operators that will allow for more opportunity and more innovation, because that is where it's happening. Otherwise, you're cog in the wheel unfortunately yeah and i i um that's i i worry about an in, uh, a an administration that declares war on the oil industry we're, we're unlike anyone else i mean I, I worked in the netherlands and they were always proud of shell and here we you know every other administration go to war with the oil and gas industry and i, I would like to see that come hate us all you want but we uplift every other industry out there right well uh, Catherine, that's all the time we have for the show. I want to thank you so much. This conversation was very enlightening. This week on In the Old Patch Radio, Catherine Mills, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.